We're in our study of 1 Peter. You can join me in chapter 2 this morning. We're reminded of the theme of this letter to the churches, calling them to be followers of Jesus Christ, even in the face of hostility. To be followers of Jesus Christ, even if it seems to be the minority. To be followers of Jesus Christ, even when you feel like you don't belong. But to follow Jesus Christ, steadied by grace. This morning, we look at a short paragraph that builds on a foundation of last week's study, the witness of our works. And today we consider submission to government. In the last two years, you've probably thought more about government and the Christian life than all of the rest of your Christian life together. I actually listened to a sermon from 1 Peter 2 this week, and the preacher began with an illustration of saying that he was wondering how to even apply this, uh, because so many Christians would think, listen, I, I vote, and I'm a good citizen, like, why do I even need to hear this? And then after the last two years where we've wrestled back and forth with what it means to be not only a follower of Jesus in a world that seems to more and more be wandering from any kind of Judeo-Christian ethic, but also how do we respond to governments as Christians? So let's consider how the witness of our works even applies to our submission to human government. Listen as I read God's word to us in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Lord, would you guide our thoughts through this, your word today. Each time we encounter your word, would you remind us that change is our goal, change that would lead us more and more to the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ, whom we long to exalt with our lives, even as citizens of this land. So help us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Big idea is taken right from Peter's words. We must submit to government. Peter says it up front, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. The emphasis is on the humanity of the authority. So be subject to every human institution. But even the word institution isn't what we think of as a a structured kind of governance plan. The the word itself is the word for creature. And the other four or five times it's used in the New Testament, it's the word creature. It's just it doesn't quite sound right to say be subject to every human 
creature, but I think it was a subtle dig that Peter was putting to the culture's tendency to deify the emperor. He is clearly establishing human governance as creaturely, which means it is subject to the creator. It's emphasizing, in a sense, what he means by saying, for the Lord's sake. So be subject, for the Lord's sake, who's the supreme creator of all things, be subject to every human creature and any human creation of governance. Those who either put themselves in positions of authority or, as it is in our land, are designated by the vote of people to serve in that capacity. No matter who they are, and he says whether it's the emperor as supreme, supreme human creaturely authority, or those that work underneath that highest human authority, they are all human governors. They are all human creatures who are responsible and accountable before the creator. Peter then tells us to be sure, whether we want to say institution or creature, that we're talking about people, whether it's the emperor or the governor, and he, and he lists people so that we know this is the mindset. We're talking about those in local governments, state governments, federal governments, in all their different forms of governments, lawmakers, law enforcers. Those people are all governing authorities, but they are all human authorities under the Creator. All that in verse 13, really just to communicate this general announcement, this command to us as foreigners trying to live for Christ in our land, be subject to government. That's Peter's point. However, he supports it, and I want us to understand that support. So let me give it to you briefly, the three explanations for our submission, and then we'll go back and study through them. See where we're going in the text. Verse 13, the big idea, be subject to, or we'll probably use more often the word submit. Submit to human authority. Verse 15 is an explanation for this is the will of God. Verse 16 is an explanation. Submit to human authority as free. And in verse 17, submit to human authority, in a sense it says, as a way of life. This really is a response to all people and not even just human authority. So seeing kind of where we're going, let's step back now and look at the first explanation for Peter giving a command to us to submit to human governments. To obey speed limits, to protest peacefully, to pay our taxes. Anything we think of as citizenship, remember, comes really from the scriptures. Even when the Bible says here that we obey the emperor or his governor sent to reign in evil and praise good, that, that description is, is, in essence, the definition of civilization. So when we think of civilization, people being able to get along without killing themselves off, 
What we mean is God has ordained governments to facilitate that kind of peace, we could call it. We have simply learned post-sin in the Garden of Eden that we will never attain the kind of peace that only Christ can bring in when he is the supreme ruler. That standard there that's given to us, punish those who do evil and praise those who do good, is kind of the, the low bar for all government to count as human government. Generally, they must be able to point to something they are doing to facilitate and praise good and something they're doing to reign in evil. Now, unfortunately, many governments around the world who are corrupt in many ways can probably meet the low bar of doing something that praises good and something that reigns in evil. So Peter's not saying, here's the measure. If government is perfect, go ahead and obey. But if there's any flaw there, you don't have to obey. Because we certainly don't want our kids learning that about our parental authority. We're not saying only obey me if mom or dad are completely consistent in the way we apply all the rules. No, we're saying that there's a standard of what biblical parenting should be, and there's a parenting of what church leader or there's a standard of what church leadership should be, and there's a standard of what government, human government should be. And as governments are meeting that threshold of being government, then generally the principle is submit to human government. First explanation, verse 15, for this is the will of God. Kind of starts a new sentence, but that word for is explaining something and, and it just teaches us go back to the theme of the paragraph. Be subject to government. Submit to government for this is the will of God. Now, the will of God is always a little vague to us as far as its specifics. So when the scriptures say this is the will of God and gives you an explanation, we should kind of have this sigh of relief. I don't even need to be very discerning here about what God's will is. He's going to spell it out exactly. Submit to human government, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now that's what we studied last time. Verse 11, as sojourners and exiles abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against the soul, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now we hear that by doing good, we put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And just a reminder, this doesn't mean that if you're a good person, nobody will ever accuse you, or that even in the face of accusation, your goodness will always prevail. It's simply saying their words will fall empty when anyone looks at the righteous life that you've lived as a Christian citizen. This is the will of God, that by doing good. Well, here's a connection now to the will of God. This by doing good. That same word, doing good, was just used in verse 14 for the governors that would praise those who do good. So government is 
supposed to support citizens who do what is right, who do good. And now we're hearing that we should yield to governments who recognize do-gooders, and we should make sure as Christians that we especially are in that category of people who are doing good. We should be the citizens that stand out as those who uphold laws. Be known as those who do good. This is how we understand God's will in regard to submission to government authorities. Be known as those who do good. It is God's will for you to do good, to be a good citizen, to submit to human government, to be diligent and particular in your taxes, to generally be a good driver. All the laws of the land that call for civilized good living, it's the will of God that you be in the category of people that keep those laws. Same word for doing good, so we don't have to be confused about what the good is. has that verb tied to it in both words, the doing of good. It's very much a practical application. You are supposed to be doing good. The witness of your works we studied last time. But Peter reveals something else that's important regarding the will of God and our submission to government. Let me first illustrate it this way. As our girls got older, We used to say when we were leaving them home to watch the other kids, we would say to the younger siblings, listen, you need to listen to your older sisters. And then we would load up and drive away and decide if we were coming back, right? (laughs) Some of you are at that stage of life. So who was in charge of the house when we were gone? Well, the sisters, you could say. But you could also say the parents are still in charge of the house. Their authority is still there. It's just that we were asking the littles to submit to their siblings. Well, when we read this text and and see that this is the will of God, that you should be doing good, you should be keeping laws, you should be subject to governing authorities... It is God who is telling us to obey human government. So try to picture it here. God is telling us, I need a third hand or a foot, to submit to governing authorities. So God telling us to yield to authorities. But human government is not the highest authority. God is. Human governments, like the older sibling, being asked to carry out some authority in the place of the ultimate authority. Now think with me. The command to us to submit to human government does not rule out the possibility of exceptions to that submission. Now we don't usually like talking about exceptions to obeying commands. But that's why it's imperative for us to understand God telling us to yield to human authority. 
And now we're asking, could there ever be an exception to my obedience to the human authority? And I think you can see where it's going. Should human government's command conflict with God's command, what am I to do? We feel like it's a dilemma, but it's really not. It's really the same submission God has always called for. Ultimate obedience to God that at times for children looks like obedience to parents. At times for church members looks like obedience to human leaders in the church, the pastors. And at times in government, it looks like citizens obeying government. But that authority and obedience is not universal or absolute. It's an authority that derives its power of command from the ultimate obedience we render to God himself. And this is why children can obey their parents in the Lord. They're obeying God as they obey their parents. This is why you can do your work, Colossians tells us, that you do for your boss as to the Lord, not as a men pleaser. By all means, try to please your boss with good work. That's not what he's saying. He's just simply saying, realize you're actually accountable to somebody even higher than your boss for your work ethic. And so it is with this command to obey human government. It's imperative that we obey human government because God's the one telling us to do it. So if that human government challenges the authority of God, we are left with what we call a choice, but it's really not. It's still we are left with obeying God, who is always the authority, who at times tells us submit to human authority. To understand what the exception might look like, we could read Acts 4 and 5 to see the example of the apostles who refused to obey the command of human government. Now, right away, we have to think, whoa, that's an exception. That's not the spirit we're to have. I don't want to obey. I'll do what I want. No, the spirit is right here. Submit to human authority. However, because it's human authority and not ultimate authority, there may be exceptions. And there it is in Acts 4 and 5, fleshed out for us to give us some kind of compass on discerning that. And at that point, the apostles refused to obey the command of human government to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And their words are, because we must obey God rather than man. Just as ultimately the little siblings must obey mom and dad and not just sisters. That authority of sisters could be wrong at times. And so could human authority. Peter's point is this. Be very careful about moving out of a place of submission to authority. In this context, human government But in the context of church, in the context of parenting, be very careful of moving out of a place of submission. Because the general teaching of the Bible for the Christian life is we submit to authority. But in the language of our text, we must be careful to to rightly meet out whose authority is whose. Because our text has told us be subject to, For the Lord's sake, our text has told us, 
this is the will of God. And those phrases right there are are not just kind of casually thrown in there to add a little weight to our obedience. It's to remind us of how the authority comes to us. God's will is for you to be a really good citizen. That's the first argument for submitting to government. Be subject to human government, for this is God's will, that you be one of those who's known as doing good. So, tax date's coming right up, isn't it? Turn it in. Pay your tax. Although we all probably recognize that a lot of your tax dollars go to things that you wouldn't endorse. You could say, that's not right. I don't like that. Well, let's work hard at submitting to human government. For this is God's will that we be those do-gooders or good doers. I don't know if either one of those are really words. But find yourself in that category. Be the loving neighbor. Be the voting citizen. Redress grievances through protest and speak truth in whatever means is necessary. Get involved. Be praying. Steward the responsibility of being a citizen of what really could be argued as the greatest country on earth. That's stewardship. Call it patriotism and wave your flag if you feel inspired to do so. I got a place to mount mine on the house. I don't mind being patriotic, but we must also see that patriotism as a stewardship of what God has given us. It's God's will for you to be a really good citizen. So how can you improve on that? What can you do better? And I don't mean more red, white, and blue. I mean more of the real stewardship. For some of you, it could be, Yeah, we'll have your name on a sign in our yard because you're running for city council. For some of you, it'll just be, let's start with, you know, an iced tea given to my neighbor, inviting them over to sit on the porch while the hamburgers cook or something, and maybe giving them one too when they're done. Do something to start promoting civilization, citizenship, because those words should first and foremost be handed to the Christians who are living so well that it's obvious they are about doing good. Submit to human government, for this is the will of God. Number two, submit to human government with an understanding of true freedom. True freedom. We understand freedom. We can see the pictures in the Bible of Old Testament Egyptian slavery. But really, we understand freedom probably even better from our world around us. Some of you have studied the war for independence and debated whether it is a war for independence or a revolutionary war, right? Longing for freedom, especially the religious freedom that was first brought to the continent by the pilgrims. We understand when we see nations around the world that oppress their people and, and keep them impoverished by draining all of the wealth and prosperity and resource of natural resources and people resources. We see the bondage and slavery all around the world. Entire you know, justice, both religious and secular programs, exist around the world to free people from slavery. 
be it sex trafficking or, or the slavery of work. We, we have in our minds a sense of what freedom is. And if we know freedom in Christ, we know what it is to wake up each day with the opportunity to, to worship and to choose righteousness, as Romans 6 told us. So we know what freedom is. At least we know what it tastes like. I could eat a good meal, but I have, I have no ability to tell what herbs or spices or what went into foods. I can just know that it tastes good. Some of you probably know whether there's dill sprinkled in there or thyme or maybe it's just salt and pepper. We might not know all the ingredients and exactly how to explain it, but we know the taste of freedom. Peter is saying this, be subject to human government as free. You see, verse 16 has fewer words in the original language, simply meaning that in translation into English, we often have to add some words to make it flow the way the English language flows. But if you were to read it in Greek, you wouldn't see live, you wouldn't see people who are, you would just see two words, as free, which then grammatically makes it flow. We, we see exactly what he's saying. Be subject to human government as though you are free. It's an interesting concept, maybe even a paradox, that we would be submissive to as independent that we would be submitted to as free, that we would be free from bondage as slaves. It, it just doesn't seem to work in just pure secular language. So Peter's point is, as we heard in Romans chapter 6, recognize that you are free from obligation to others. You are free in Christ. Only his command is binding on you. But his command is submit to government. So submit to government as free. A couple of thoughts, what it doesn't mean as well as what it does mean. Number one, you are not free to do evil. Peter says as much just openly. Let's, let's address that first wrong way of thinking that somebody could run with. He says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil. Now again, the word evil has just been used, right? Just like doing good was used, so evil was used. Governors are sent by him to punish those who do evil. And now we're being told, don't let your freedom be an excuse for doing that evil. Don't let your freedom in Christ be an excuse for not being a good citizen. Don't let your freedom in Christ give you some kind of entitlement to disobey human governance. Unless, of course, you remember we go back to for his sake and his will. General principle is, just because you're a Christian who's free in Christ, whose home is in heaven, who thinks you're a pilgrim passing through, 
The reality is you're living here in this nation and you need to be a good citizen of that nation. Don't use religion or freedom in Christ as an excuse for doing evil, especially the evil of disobeying human government. You're not as free as you might think, Peter says. Paul would say the same thing in the context of Christian liberty. Yes, we have this freedom in Christ, but don't use your liberty to trample on someone else and cause them harm. So it's as if because we know freedom in the patriotic sense, we hear freedom in Christ and we grab up this banner of, I can do whatever I want. And Peter's like, whoa, let's, let's define some boundaries here. You're, you're free from sin. You're free in Christ, but you're not free to sin. Number two, you are not free from authority. As free is simply a descriptive of the main thrust of the text. Be subject to every human institution. So the very descriptive as free only exists with be subject to government. They clearly are not at odds with each other. Our freedom allows us to yield to authority. And ultimately, that's his point. Number three, you are free to serve God. So don't let your freedom be used as a cover-up for evil, but instead use that freedom as service to God. You're no longer a slave to sin, but you are a slave to righteousness, Romans 6 told us. In language, on the page, we sense contradiction. But in the experience, there is no contradiction. There's only joy. God's boundaries lovingly steering me in a path of righteousness to his greatest blessing. That's why John could write in his letter to the church, here's the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous or they're not burdensome to us. The psalmist would say, oh, how I love your law. Because every law is a road sign and a guardrail to keep me on this track of loving God with all my heart, soul, and mind. So I am completely free to love God with all that I have, to serve him. And his law, his command, his boundary only steers me down that path of freedom. The experience of freedom to be a slave to God is one of joy and satisfaction, not burden and grief. And I can't believe God's making me do this. Every act of godly submission to human authority is a reminder that in Christ I am able, I am able to be righteous. I am able to say yes to obedience to imperfect authorities, whether it be my parents, my spouse, my church, my government. I am able to do right because I am free to be the servant of God. So number one, submit with an understanding of God's will. Number two, submit with an understanding of true freedom. Finally, number three, submit to government with an understanding of Christian living. Peter's point in verse 17 is that this spirit of submission should characterize the way of life for followers of Jesus. 
and he makes his point with these four short commands. One, honor everyone. Everyone. Pretty all-inclusive. So think of everyone that you might have the opportunity to show honor toward this week. See, this verse is a great defense of Christianity when you as a Christian could be accused of being hateful or unloving, prejudiced. Demonstrate to them that this is my Christian faith, that I am governed by the command to honor everyone, each gender, which really does exist, each of them, each ethnic group, every worldview, every socioeconomic class. The Bible's not saying, listen, you don't agree with somebody who takes Islam as their worldview, so don't honor them. You don't believe in the values of somebody in the transgender crowd, so don't honor them. No, it's honor everyone. There is no one that you are free to not honor. And the foundation for this simple two-word command, honor everyone, is that humanity is made in the image of God. So that person that stands for everything America hasn't stood for and everything you don't stand for as a Christian, with flags and banners and protests everywhere, they seem to hate everything that you stand for and love. The Bible says, take that person and honor them. You say, but their cause is evil. Of course it is, apart from Christ. But honor that person as made in the image of God. And start wrestling with, am I the one having encountered their vitriol or hate who is supposed to demonstrate to them the love of Christ? Because when you read on in this text, it's going to very quickly get to being reviled and not reviling in return, but instead showing love and grace, even if it means Christ laying down his life on the cross at the hands of those who hated him. There is no out to dishonor anybody. Every life is stamped with the image of God from youth in utero to old age, senility, no value to society, we're told. God says, no, the whole spectrum of life from beginning to end is stamped with the image of God. So honor everyone. Number two, love other believers. Now he says, love the brotherhood. We may not use the language of brotherhood much, but if we do, great, fits well. We could simply say, love other believers. Now, doesn't that sound simple? Similar emphasis in Galatians 6, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. We're not wrong to say my, my first help may be to God's people, but we would be wrong to say that's as far as I'm obligated to go. Love other believers. How will you love the family of God this week? 
And in answering that question, I'm going to weed out like immediate family, okay? You're kind of stuck there every day at home and kind of are going to be in the place to love them a little bit. But how are you going to intentionally love the brotherhood, the family of God, beyond just your immediate family? I don't have answers to give you. I suppose I could start making up ideas, but in obedience to God's word this morning, go home and just wrestle with, Lord, what do you want me to do? Who do you want me to love? Give me some direction. Would you help me to know I want to be obedient here? Love other believers. Number three, fear God. To be clear, the word is to be terrified. I know at times we often say, well, no, in the Bible, the word fear doesn't, because we're not terrified of God. Well, we, we probably should be, all right? The Bible says our God is a consuming fire. So we, we wouldn't tinker with a blazing inferno in the house. We would get out for fear of what could be done. Well, I understand our our attempt to soften that idea of fearing God. So let's just put it in, in biblical language and recognize that because God is holy and all powerful and sovereign, we should fear Him. And when the Bible takes fear as being terrified, literally trembling, as maybe you have had a child do come running to you in fear, and they're literally just shaking. The adrenaline is running through their body, provoked by fear. We should fear and tremble, but in the context of God's holiness, the Bible recognizes that we can put this in a spiritual context that looks like the word reverence. It's just, our problem is we have made reverence such a non-threatening word that the argument doesn't work. So if I just said we need to reverence God, we'd be, oh yeah, we we all do that. But we don't. We don't because when we have a bad attitude, we just don't think it's a big deal. If we have a short spirit or short curt words with our spouse, we think, well, I'm just, you know, having a rough day or I'm just tired. And, And we don't reverence God. We don't think I've sinned against God. We're not struck by my sin wasn't blatant this week. All I did was not love him with all my heart. So we've diminished reverence so little that we can't really distinguish between reverence and terrified fear and trembling. Here, Peter has begun with honor. He's going to end with honor. But in this relationship to God, he ramps it up significantly. Honor other people. Even honor the emperor. We'll see. But when it comes to God, it's it's not just paying some kind of token respect or remembering to say, yes, sir. It's recognizing who God is as creator, as Lord, as Savior and rescuer. Fear God. This command sets God apart from all the other relationships. You don't fear any man in this way. This response is reserved for God alone. And then finally, honor the emperor. The word is king, so it is in verse 13, but in the Roman context, they didn't call him king, they called him emperor, so that's a good translation. Just means that high authority. So we can think of it in our context as Americans as honoring our elected officials. Interestingly, it's the same honor we give to everyone. 
Now, I think their position of authority is kind of stamped with that understanding of honor because that's the point Peter makes beginning in 13. Be subject to those in this position of authority. But I think there's something else here about honor, that he starts with honor everybody and then he closes with his theme, honor human governments. I think perhaps we should close the gap between what we perceive as important people and unimportant people. So I can remember in, in my church life having like a political Sunday and recognizing political officials. And people take on a whole kind of aura of respect around elected officials, around sports stars, um, around the CEO of your company if he shows up. Suddenly everybody's just a little more, you know, well-behaved and proper because so-and-so's here. So we distinguish between the important people that I need to put on my honor for and the unimportant people that we can blow off and ignore every day. The text is not saying, diminish your honor for the somebodies. It's saying, honor everybody. If you treated everybody in the workplace with the honor the Bible's calling for, if the CEO walked in, you might not need change much at all. And if you treated some elderly saint or one of the little six-year-olds with honor, it might not matter if the governor visited our church and you wouldn't have to line up and shake hands real meekly and humbly with respect because you're used to honoring everybody. So there's a little question here that makes us think, am I really called to do all that much different towards government leaders that I'm called to do for everyone? People made in the image of God. Me now as salt and light, speaking truth and obeying God's commands toward them all. The waitress at the restaurant today, if you were eating out, the bagger or sacker of groceries at Price Chopper, would they get the same honor this week that Patrick Mahomes would get if you encountered him at some department store? Would we have the same response of, oh, wow, there's a somebody? And God says, answer the question, who is my neighbor, biblically? And it might just be the person that's lost in the shadows. And God says, honor them. So submit to governing authorities. It's a big idea in the paragraph that you would have found readily. You would have read it in the first verse. Peter just makes a few arguments. Because it's God's will. Because in doing so, you're freely obeying God. And because it should be a way of life for you as a Christian to honor everybody. So Heavenly Father, would you help us to be people who embrace submission. Submission defined by your authority. This means we as citizens need to work hard at submission. We as church members need to work hard at submission to our spiritual leaders. As fellow Christians, we need to work hard at submitting to one another. Marriages, for the young people, the children, they need to submit to parents 
Help us to be people who embrace submission, believing that your authority is good authority. Lord, forgive us for our lack of submission, for our rebellion, our independent spirit that has hurt marriage, that has hurt our relationship to parents, that has promoted disunity in the church, that has hindered our witness as citizens in this nation. We hear your word this morning calling us to submission, and we need your Holy Spirit this morning to walk through the resistance to any submission, but especially through those exceptions, the nuances that call for courage, for wisdom and truth to prevail. Lord, bless our families as we promote submission. Bless our church. Bless the unity of our church with those in our community as we understand our mutual submission to Christ in whom we rejoice as the perfect authority who will never disappoint us in his righteous rule whose righteous rule we anticipate and long for. Help us to go from this place in ready obedience as willful learners but as faithful doers of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.